Yesterday was Yesterday Once More by The Carpenters, and this is podcast number 130, entitled, Okay, All Right, Victor Hugo. And I didn't really want to do it, 
because the material is um, has been so pre-soaked and digested over the years that the current um, hoopla and uh, tremendous interest, galvanic interest in Victor Hugo because of the Christmas 2012 release of the musical version, Hollywood version of Les Mis, seemed kind of a Steve Perry's wheel in the sky as far as I was concerned. I just didn't want to do it because um, this particular material feels like in 2012 a colossal turn of the cosmic wheel of recidivism and repetition of something that was already sort of done. And sometimes you say to yourself, you know, when a new book appears about a subject that you actually know a little something about, and you sort of want to say, well, why does why did this new book have to appear? I mean, we already have an authoritative biography of, or an authoritative monograph on. Why should there be? Um, why should anyone feel the need to do a new one except just to do it for the new era? Well, that's what it is. But um, so I've bucked it and fought it, and I said, you know, do we really have to go back to Les Mis? I mean, this was something that you know, the generation before lived with, with their beach towels and with Cosette and Fantine. And we know about this. And yet, um, let's just say it's back. Um, and uh, in the, what could be called sometimes the Christian subculture or the evangelical subculture, I always have a kind of slight, um, kind of, I roll my eye or um, kind of, uh, I almost have to beware a sneer because it feels often like a kind of um, everybody's running to this lifeboat or running to this particular current uh, fix, hoping that that uh, will match the agenda of the Christian faith and culture, or maybe this will catch fire. There's a sense in which these phenomena, whatever it may be, they recur, uh, kind of become almost expedient or utile for the promulgation or the um, um, development of certain predetermined ends. And that's why I get a little um, uncomfortable with the current thing, uh, kind of the uh, the uh, tumbleweed connection of, uh, of Victor Hugo. But that, that has nothing to do with Victor Hugo, because Victor Hugo, I mean, that's a phenomenon in itself. Now, it almost, uh, uh, someone I respect very much when I was once invoked to the name of Tolstoy in a kind of a comment slash question that I addressed to this very, and a personage whose opinions I valued just above all in this field, um, sort of looked at me with one eye kind of askance and said, um, Tolstoy? You know, as if to say, you son of a bitch, I mean, who the, you are so pretentious, you know, why don't you just let, let let's, let's deflate that particular tire. Well, um, but let's just accept the fact that Victor Hugo is here, and he's certainly here to stay, whether this movie is a success or whoever likes the movie or is carried away with the movie or is attracted to the movie. Nevertheless, let's, nevertheless, as uh, someone asked me, I will talk a little bit about Victor Hugo now, short and sweet, and it's the result of years of, uh, of study, um, pre-soaked. I'm, I'm not going to say why it is that I know so much about Hugo, but and you, you can say, who the heck is this guy to, 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 in 15 minutes, go through the work of this particular Olympian gifted um, creator, an artist. Well, all I can say is this is PZ's podcast, and if you're listening to it, I hope you trust my voice. You uh, know that there are some things that I've uh, studied, and uh, this is one of them, and uh, 50 years worth. Uh, I think I first read Les Miserables when I was probably 11. So, um, And then because of the French language, I was able to read. Um, I read 93 and 
French and uh, his poetry in French and his uh, plays in French. But uh, see, the moment I say it, it sounds like I'm, you know, full of myself. So that's why I haven't really wanted to do this podcast. I have completely resisted this podcast. But hey, all right. Okay. All right, then. Victor Hugo. Well, um, it's worthy uh, beginning with Mel Brooks when it comes to Victor Hugo. And here's the quotation from Mel Brooks. Hey, Torquemada, what do you say? I just got back from the order de fe. Order de fe? What's the order de fe? It's what you oughtn't to do, but you do anyway. Well, that um, timeless quotation from History of the World Part One by Mel Brooks is a reference to one of the earlier plays of uh, Victor Hugo because he began, and I'm not going to give you any of the biographical background. That's all available, and you can read it a million times over, nor the sequence of his creations. But I will give you the feeling of it after a lifetime of study, for what it's worth, through this particular little stimme and the voice box. In and out and in and out. Um, the uh, squeeze box starts with the plays of Hugo. His first breakthrough uh, creation was his play Cromwell. And those of you who are interested in Protestant Christianity and Reformation, you have a real friend in Victor Hugo, although he, did, he came from a Catholic background and was never a Protestant. And his understanding of Protestantism was more as an anti-Catholic or anti-clerical phenomenon of emancipation. And there he had a real point. But um, confessional Protestants will be reluctant to embrace that because confessional Protestants want to focus on the theological aspects of the Reformation rather than the sort of more um, um, formal uh, aspects which resulted in criticism of an inherited tradition and a kind of emancipatory movement of freedom and liberation from the Church of Rome, which it did. But they were not the... They were the formal results of the Reformation, not the material or substantial results. And Hugo was much less interested in the, in the material than he was in the formal. However, his play Cromwell is an attempt to get inside the head of the greatest leading political uh, Puritan leader, I guess you would say, uh, Oliver Cromwell. And it's an amazing tour de force, and I'm looking at it right now in the Flammarion edition. And it's really, really good. And he then did a play, or in this relatively young, about the Spanish Inquisition. And that has a real uh, Galsworthian feeling because there's some real twists and turns and dramatic original interventions in his play about the um, the leader of the Spanish Inquisition, um, Cardinal Torquemada. And uh, that's really worth doing. But his uh, plays generally are anti-establishment, sort of 1968-type <clears throat> um Le printemps 1968, uh, kind of uh, shotgun, shotgun, you the jerk, baby. They're shotgun at uh, the vested interests of uh, early, early mid 19th century France. Then, uh, after his great breakthrough as a kind of uh, Dramatist, we would have called him romantic, but that's not really quite the word. He also was always writing poetry, and his uh, the poem that I loved uh, coming along was his poem that's called I think it's called "Written Beneath the Crucifix" or "Words Beneath the Crucifix," and um, it's a f actually just a four line um, one. It's a quatrain. Would that be the right word? It's a quatrain of uh, sentiments about Christ that are utterly and in keeping with the theology of the cross at every level, and they're pastorally acute, 
they're theologically, Christologically right on target, and they're extraordinarily emotional. And read his poetry. There are many poems he wrote that invoke uh, Jesus Christ, many. Uh, he constantly comes into it. But there's also a kind of eye of God, eye in the storm, a little bit of Orion's daughter type of storm and definitely some pantheism. I, I want to isolate uh, two things. First, La Légion des Siècles, I translate that as the great legend of the centuries, but other people translate it more formally. But La Légion des Siècles, volumes one and two, includes a poem called The Rose of the Infanta that is the definitive poem on the Spanish Armada. Now, it's like Guard of Honor by Cousins. It's a definitive book about uh, the Second World War that never leaves Florida. Or Galsworthy's Saint's Progress, which is a marvelous uh, World War I novel that only once actually goes to the front and is entirely played out on the home front during the worst months of years of the French warfare, although it only once makes a very brief peregrination, <clears throat> almost in a mind's eye to the front but it's a great novel of the war. Well, um, the Rose of the Infanta occurs as a young girl who turns out is a royal personage walking in a garden in Seville or Madrid or wherever it is, um, and um, something about a rose that she and her duena dwell on and reflect on and uh, come to find out it's very definitely um, the frisson of the poem has to do with the fact that the father or the uncle or who brother, whoever it is of the um, heroine or the voice of the poem, subject of the poem, is, uh, is leading the Spanish Armada. And we're talking the year 1588, and there's a tremendous sense of dread and the catastrophe that, that um, Hugo believes is God's catastrophe and judgment of wrath visited on the Spanish Armada in favor of the Protestant, heroic, emancipated, plucky, foxy English um, is uh, what it's really about. It's a poem about the Spanish Armada. Now, um, La Légion des Siècles is full of very grand and wildly pretentious sort of cosmic dramas in which um, things on earth are linked to things in heaven, a kind of green pastures but with a huge astronomical, interplanetary, cosmological um, metaphysic. And uh, it's very grandiose. Some of it's really, really wonderful. He does it, you know, through Gates of Pearl Streams and the countless host, you know, Vaughan Williams. Uh, this man uh, succeeds. Now, uh, some people believe that his greatest work of poems is poems that he wrote in his, as an old man entitled L'Art d'être grand-père, The Art of Being a Grandfather, because he uh, gets to the heart, Hugo does with his beloved grandchildren, of what it really is to be a graceful parent. He talks about the power of being a grandparent is that you can relate to your grandchildren without the law and control and restraint, which is the role of, or, or even uh, didacticism and pedagogy, which is the role of the parent. And you are able to have a relationship of pure grace with grandchildren. Now, there's a real truth in that. And uh, his poems, uh, Art of Being a Grandfather, are really wonderful, and they're very mature, uh, and they are have a special place in the canon because of the age at which he wrote most of them, though not all. <clears throat> I've never thought it was really quite as good, La Dette Grandpère, as others. I came to it with a tremendous expectation about grace to be placed in these wonderful, rather laconic and non-legendary and metaphysical poems, and I was slightly disappointed, so I've got to read them again and get back to you on that one. Now let's quickly look at the, let's do a pass through the um, the uh, 
great novels of uh, of uh, Hugo, and uh, it's proper to remember his um, preface to Toilers of the Sea, Les Étrangleurs du Mer. I think that's what it's Étrangleur. I think that's what it's called, uh, the Toilers of the Sea. And in 1866, living in Jersey, I believe. Uh, not Jersey, but Jersey, a Channel Island, he wrote this great book, his third in a, what he regarded as a trilogy of necessity or ananke. And in his 1866 preface, Hugo said that there are three ananke's or necessities on the burden of man, uh, which are rooted in a fourth. And the first necessity is the necessity of uh, the fate of dogma. These are his words. And uh, he had written um, Notre Dame de Paris, or what we call the Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, to differentiate God's work and the grace of God and freedom and the freedom that is um, evinced and engendered by merciful love and self-sacrificing love and erotic love even um, on a character uh, that uh, as opposed to the heavy hand of the church, which is the role of uh, law, control, and restraint. And uh, that's what he said, that uh, Notre Dame de Paris was written as a kind of... Um, uh, attack upon the church as over against emancipation, which he did associate with Christianity, but not with ecclesiastical institutions, to say the least. And by the way, that um, book was made into many movies, Anthony, uh, ha uh, Anthony Quinn, and uh, obviously Charles Lawton, who died a Catholic, by the way. Uh, it's a whole other story. I think I've mentioned it once. But um, one of the great versions of it is the musical that I think came out in, uh, in the 90s, may have been earlier than that, maybe the 80s in Paris. The French musical uh, is very good. It's not like um, the Boulogne-Schomburg, um, Les Mis, Marta Guerre type musicals. It's quite different, very melodic, a lot of rock and roll, almost, and very intellect. That is one hell of an intellectual musical. But I recommend you get it. Uh, there is a, when it, it, it posits the very cynical but very brilliant um, sort of world-weary Abbot Frodo with the power of the hunchback and it's really really good you can get that i think it's it's in french but it's it'll, it's translated and it's really wonderful then the second ananke or necessity he believed was the necessity laid on men's backs of law law and accusation and that was uh, the um ananke of uh, les miserables and that's the great one, in my opinion. Still is the great one, despite it. Whatever overexposure it may have, it's still the great. Just like, you know, C.S. Lewis is overexposed, but he his line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, remains an enduring childhood evocation. And similarly, Les Miserables posits grace in Jean Valjean and law in Inspector Javert in a most remarkable uh, way. It has uh, one of the most um, accurate depictions in human life of um, substitution and imputation that has ever been done in terms of the nighttime desperate journey of Jean Valjean through the sewers of Paris to rescue his uh, um, unwelcome um, soon-to-be future son-in-law Marius, and that is an amazing evocation. And uh, Jesus Christ and Calvary and the Cross is free, are frequently referenced in that amazing book, and it has the most sublime parable of grace known to French literature that I'm aware of, maybe forever, is uh, the Bishop's Candlesticks at the beginning, and read it in the unabridged version. It's only touched on briefly in the musical because of reasons of length, but it is, it's really worthy of 180 pages. It's that good, and I think Hugo devotes a great deal of attention 
addition to Bishop Avenue in the original unabridged classic, which I'm looking at here. And uh, <clears throat> that is uh, a, a, a definitive work in a way of grace-filled Christian understanding of the nature of uh, human destiny. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying these things, but, but I, it, it, if it's true, it's true. <clears throat> the third of four novels I want to talk about is uh, is uh, Toilers of the Sea, which is sometimes regarded as pantheistic, and it is a little pantheistic. It has a slight occult. It's a slight element of occultism, and there's also an astonishing understanding of high church, low church, and broad church liberal Anglicanism in eight, circa 1860, with a very perceptive picture of a Methodist minister, a free Methodist minister. That's fabulous. But just underneath the Ananke of materialism and possessions, which that is about, you'll see. Underneath the tremendous fight with the um, sort of 20,000 leagues under the sea fight with the octopus, which is undertaken by the <clears throat> hulking, <clears throat> somewhat possessed hero, <clears throat> great man, and underneath the kind of slightly occult pantheistic um, uh, zone of that book, there is a great parable of Christ-like, Christ-ish, let's just call it Christian, sacrifice in the conclusion, which you'll see. There is a absolutely cruciform conclusion to that book. Some Christians read it <clears throat> and they get a little bit worried <clears throat> by certain aspects of the lead hero. <clears throat> but if you read it in light of the end, once, if once you get to the end, if you're willing to really read the book, and it's very readable and wonderful, I've got the classic comics, the classics illustrated version. I'm looking at it right now of uh, Toilers of the Sea. It's a wonderful novel. And let me finish with... Um, the uh, last novel of his, um, I always forget whether he wrote it after Toilers of the Sea. I think he did, but you can look it up. It's called Quatre Vingt Treize, uh, 93, and it's about the <clears throat> sort of worst year of the French Revolution involving a, <clears throat> a uh, actually a very famous Catholic and monarchist uprising that occurred in Normandy and Brittany among very devout uh, peasant people during the height of the excesses, as we say, of the French Revolution. And there's a Republican, in the French sense of the word, sans-culotte, Girondist, fanatical, left-wing, atheist um, uh, hero. And there is a monarchist, right-wing, Catholic hero. And how they intersect and how Hugo brings together in a relatively short book a lot of themes to a shattering climax involving the grace of God and the power of sacrifice in such an completely he's, he's, he's the genius of the man is his skill in bringing together uh, a number of elements, contradictory elements perfectly so that the conclusion is a perfect conclusion to a perfect book and embodies the uh, we might call it um, an atonement format uh, or um, an expiatory, it's bigger than that. I mean, you don't want to use theological words. There is an act of love and an act of uh, inner motive and uh, alteration clocking in the deepest fissured uh, works of the clock of a human being at the conclusion, which has been waiting us in 93 that makes it one of uh, one of the best books that I've ever read. I recommend it. I recently looked in my old copy of it and a son of ours, Simeon Zoll, had uh, written, um, had read it in uh, at age 12 and he'd written notes on it and a few other books he'd read at the time. Uh, 
he was 12 years old, and on, on it uh, in 93, and it is a wonderful book. So what have I talked about? I've talked about the plays. Hey, Torquemada, what do you say? I've talked about the poems, and they're infinitely more than I've even touched on. You have to just take my word for it. Read them all, as it were. The Art of Being a Grandfather, and then I've talked about Hunchback of Notre Dame, Notre Dame and um, Les Miserables, Les Mis, and uh, Toilers of the Sea, which is sort of my personal favorite because it <clears throat> it covers ground that is unique <clears throat> and yet ends up in a place of just catastrophic emotion relevant to that which is most personal to me, which is love in this format in this expression. And then 93, which for me was kind of a wonderful postscriptum <clears throat> in the work of Hugo. And I'll leave it with you. That's all I really wanted to say. And uh, uh, I hope that you love the musical, which is great, and really captures the thing. We can quip, we can we can uh, carp about the musical, but um, I lived it. I've taken church groups, um, Overseas, Mary flew to London once just to see the English performance and to compare differences. And the English, the London production was more left-wing politically. It emphasized the communist to the political dimension of it. The New York production, to me, was more universal and less politicized, although it was the same song, exact same songs exactly. And you can find different things that you love. You can find the, you know, the 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 gamin, you know, the, 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 the little revolutionary who's so powerful, the Cosette figure, the Fantine figure, the, the male-female love, the imputation, the forgiveness love, the father who gives up his daughter truly, truly, truly to live her own life at the cost of everything, uh, the very sexual beginning of the book um, uh, and the beginning of the musical, that number in the factory, the uh, unbelievable, and to me, finally, the high point of Bishop Bienvenue. And if you read the book, last thing I'll say, there is a lengthy section in which the Christian figure of the bishop goes out to visit a uh, a, a, a horrible, um, uh, of the, the, the most extreme possible radical communist uh, uh, former revolutionary who's really in disgrace, but also people are in awe of him, a man who did not hesitate to chop off heads left, right, and center, and the bishop and the dying man who does not want the bishop there, confession, nonetheless the man presents to the bishop his complete self-understanding as a political revolutionary, and the bishop takes it. The bishop takes it, and it's the bishop and this Bolshevik in 1793 guys at the beginning of Les Mis is always cut from the editions that you buy, but it's in the unabridged, and it's worth the whole novel. So thank you very much, and a little bit to finish of uh, Donovan Leith and his take on Victor Hugo. God bless. <laughs>